Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Deciding who's going to lead the family company is serious business. If the US TV hit Succession is anything to go by. The wildly popular series follows the aging media tycoon Logan Roy and his three children who are all vying for control of his sprawling multi-billion dollar business empire. Why does everyone ask how I'm feeling? The problem for Logan is that none of his kids really seem to have the right qualifications, experience or aptitude to replace him. I love you, but you are not serious people. Growing up in the company's orbit has given them a sense of entitlement that doesn't quite match their capabilities. We were cut out behind our backs. But there's a shape for things for us. Perhaps what Logan Roy needs is something the scriptwriters have chosen not to give him. Grown-up grandchildren. In Asia, a process of real-world succession is underway. Power is passing from the often elderly pioneers of 20th century business empires and their children down to the third generation. They are worldly, educated abroad, and have established careers outside of the family firm. On television, the politics, drama, and emotion of family business succession has audiences gripped. But can the next generation of Asian plutocrats take the reins from their aging patriarchs without quite so much drama. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show... Asia's new plutocrats. First, we'll explore why the issue of succession has become such a big concern in Asia. Then, we'll hear about some of the characters who are worrying about their legacy. Malaysian-born Pan-Asian conglomerate owner, particularly well-known as the Sugar King, probably can turn on more axes than anyone. Finally, we'll think about how succession challenges can be overcome. There's a dance between this powerful father and a Compton son. Tom, Alice, hello. Hi, Mike. Mike, hello. So if I were to ask you both to name some big plutocratic families who've accrued huge power with huge wealth as well... Who are you thinking of? Well, uh, with all the talk of succession a few moments ago, my mind immediately jumps to media dynasties like the Murdochs and the Redstones. Yeah, being in and around New York relatively regularly, I immediately think to all of the giant families that have their names on buildings. So I guess the most iconic is the Rockefellers. But I also think of more modern dynasties 
people like the Sacklers, who were the founders of Purdue Pharmacy. Their name has actually been scrubbed from various buildings in New York after the lawsuits about the opioid epidemic. They certainly used their wealth to sort of amass serious power for a time. So what strikes me about the examples that you guys reach for, and I think this would be true of a lot of people giving examples, is that they made their names largely in the US. Rupert Murdoch, obviously not American, but it's the US part of his media empire that I think gives him the biggest part of his fame. Something very interesting has happened in Asia for the most part since the Second World War, and that is the rise of these plutocratic families very, very distant from a lot of the sort of business dynasties that people in the West might be more familiar with. You have the Chengs, whose fortune dates back to the 1950s when Cheng Yutong was building Hong Kong's biggest jewelry chain before moving into property. He died in 2016, but his influence has spread a long way beyond Asia. He has a building named after him at Jesus College, Oxford. There are dozens of examples of these plutocratic families. You have the Ambani's in India who deal in everything from retail to telecoms. Indonesia has the Riyadis with their real estate empire. And Robert Kwok from Malaysia amassed a massive fortune from the commodities trade. Well, I've heard about the Ambani's, but some of the others you mentioned there are less familiar to me. I'm somewhat ashamed to say. It's also kind of striking that while many of the big old plutocratic families we think of in the West have been steadily waning in recent decades. The opposite seems to be true where you are, Mike. Well, I suppose the West's plutocracies had a big head start in Asia. A lot of the families that I've been looking at and reporting on really didn't have very much wealth at all at the time you had groups like the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers emerging. And that in large part is because Asia's period of very rapid economic growth in some parts is really a phenomenon of the middle and late 20th century. So yeah, in the same way that the economies have caught up quite a long way, the business empires are catching up as well. Asia also has a very large proportion of family firms, far larger proportion of businesses are family owned. That's partly down to sort of different social structure in some countries. There's a slightly more extended family culture beyond the sort of Western typical nuclear family. You have, for that reason, fewer professionally managed companies, more that stretch out through big family groups. In some countries, politics is really playing a big role here too. It entrenches certain families when they have the approval of the local political leadership. Sometimes it can do them a lot of damage as well. If they lose that approval or the power shifts in a given country, that's certainly been the case in somewhere like Indonesia in the past. But it's not just a phenomenon of the poorer Asian countries. It's true in places like Singapore, in territories like Hong Kong, and a lot of these companies are now really aging into their third generation. It's a bit of a cliche, but this is often thought of as a bit of a perilous moment for family businesses. There's a saying that great families go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Basically, familial wealth often doesn't last. And in succession, the patriarch Logan Roy is having enough trouble handing things off to the second generation of his kids. But what is it about the third that is extra difficult? I think to some extent, this is a phenomenon about the age of the businesses, when they came into being and what they prospered in initially. Because we're talking a lot of the time about the middle of the 20th century, these businesses were often concentrated in areas like commodities or, or real estate, the sort of foundational things that you see cropping up and taking up a big share 
of economic output when a country is relatively poor and, and maybe is growing quite quickly. These are quite old school companies, at least in the way they started. The grandparents, the initial founders, are now increasingly out of the picture. Some of them have died. Some of them are very, very elderly now. Now, that's obviously not the case when their children started taking major roles. You know, if your son is taking a big role in the company and you're in your 50s, you are still very much around to monitor, to butt in, uh, even if in some cases you're not really meant to be in charge. It's quite different with the third generation where the grandparents are really increasingly completely out of the picture, which is going to give them some interesting differences in responsibility from their parents. Now, sometimes people aren't interested in running a business. They'd rather take the money and you see the dynasty split into smaller units. That could obviously be a good thing. Sometimes that's the best way to deal with these succession issues is to avoid them entirely, to break things up. Some of the worst outcomes come from disputes that don't lead to a sort of amicable breakup, that lead to difficulties that really damage the business. There's an additional element too for the third generation, not in all of Asia, but in parts of it, which is that the political links their grandparents made were crucial to the success of those business empires. And whether the grandchildren have the same sort of nous for local politics isn't quite clear. Well, that uh, all sounds very ominous for the new generation. Do you think there's any hope, Mike, that they might break the third generation curse? Well, in many ways, they're much better equipped, certainly on paper, than their parents' generation, certainly their grandparents' generation. They're usually internationally educated, the sort of very top flight US universities, some European universities, but particularly American business schools are very, very popular. That's partly because they have more freedom to pursue the things that they're interested in. They're not expected to go straight into the family business in the way that some previous generations might have been. But it's also partly useful for the companies, which still often have local power bases. They often don't have a lot of operations outside of Asia. And it's quite important for them to get that exposure to the rest of the world. That international element gives those companies access to areas where the grandparents and the parents usually didn't have. They're things like the tech sector, they're things like venture capital. That can actually be quite smart as a business move for the family firm. It can be quite useful when it's time to modernize, to have a a younger generation of leadership that's more familiar with those areas. But to understand why they're better equipped in some ways, it's important to understand where they came from. To do that, I wanted to speak to Joe Studwell. He's an author and researcher, and one of his books is titled Asian Godfathers, Money and Power in Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. It came out in 2007. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about that original generation of Asian tycoons that you looked at. What sort of people were they? What did they have in common? Well, I mean, you can go back to the 16th century and look at the earliest Persian and Indian and Chinese immigrants into Southeast Asia and the way in which they found patrons among political leaders and began to build businesses like that. If you go to the first half of the 20th century, then capitalism scales up and access to capital becomes the key differentiator. And the problem that the local 
East Asian oligarchs had in the first half of the 20th century is that all of the banks were controlled by European power and didn't really provide capital to them. So the breakthrough doesn't really come until the Second World War, the Japanese invasion of these countries, the displacement of the Europeans, and then you start to get the creation of locally run banks, and that accelerates in the 1950s. And once they have access to capital and also the decolonization process moves ahead, then they can really move to a new level. So with that sort of immediate post-World War II generation, there is always this intertwining of fairly fast period of economic growth, and certainly in places like Hong Kong, that sort of gave some of them almost semi-mythical reputations in their countries of origin as the top tier of the business elite. They were very positively thought of. What do you make of that hero worship that I suppose has declined a bit over the time as the generations have come through? Yeah, I think there are two sides to it. On the one hand, they are very interesting people. Culturally, they have to turn on an axis, usually in at least three directions. So you've got to be able to be seen to represent your own ethnic group. So you've got to be seen to be Chinese or Sri Lankan or Indian for a minority of the tycoons. Then you've got to acculturate to local political power in the sense of Malay sultans or Indonesian aristocracy or local Filipino power. And then you've got to acculturate to colonial power as well. So this does produce extraordinarily interesting people. And by trying to be all things to all people, they're never quite really anything. So you get Chinese tycoons who sell themselves as Chinese, but they struggle with the language. And you get Robert Kwok, a Malaysian-born pan-Asian conglomerate owner, particularly well-known as the Sugar King, probably can turn on more axes than anyone, speaks four or five Chinese dialects, but he also learned Japanese during the war. He speaks Malay, obviously, because he was born in Johor, and then he could convert into Bahasa Indonesia. Yeah, I mean, the demands of acculturation that were placed on these people is terribly interesting. In terms of the lionization of them, which I think you're right, is much less now than it used to be. I think it probably sort of peaked in the 90s when eight of 25 of the richest people in the world on the Forbes list were Southeast Asian tycoons. I think that the counter to that and the reason that that has to be pushed back is that there has never been a lot of social mobility in this group because they are really a kind of economic aristocracy. And once they build up the capital, they're very hard to displace. They're only displaced very, very slowly over a very long period of time by equity dilution. You know, each time there's an economic crisis, they lose a bit of equity control in the business, although they usually find a way to maintain control, even when they're in a minority equity position. The only times when you get people catapulted up into the top tier in the post-war era are when you get a political change that leads to new oligarchs being favoured by political powers. The sort of area that we've focused on looking at this is where this original generation of wealth has been handed 
through and we're often talking about control and at some level of responsibility being handed to third and sometimes fourth generations now. That's not an easy handover to make, I suspect, for the people succeeding. What do you make of those succession difficulties? Obviously, inheriting things from extremely powerful and, as you say, politically flexible tycoons. I think it's always difficult because the economic oligarchy is always about male power. The oligarchs retain control over their families. The kids know that they'll inherit but while the old man is alive, very often they get very little. You know, you get oligarchs, they get to the age of sort of 80 or 85 sometimes and they'll retire, but then they'll reappear. Some kids in the younger generation just decide that they're going to get out, you know, that they're happy to be a teacher or a doctor or something. <laughs> but the prize is considerable. You know, if you stay in the game, you're going to inherit, you know, a multi-billion dollar business empire. But I think you're right. I think these transitions are very difficult. And they are difficult because in the post-war generation, it was very much about total singular male power. But I think that going forward, that will change in the next generation because people have now come out of a very different background. Joe Studwell, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you. Alice, Tom, IA wondered what you made of that. The sort of discussion about the shape-shifting identity on the part of these businessmen is really interesting to me because there's this huge identity and ethnicity element to wealth and network building in large parts of Asia. I'd actually been reading a book recently about Sun Yat-sen, the first very brief president of the Republic of China, and the discussions about Chinese commercial and mercantile families in Southeast Asia when Sun was traveling around and fermenting revolution, trying to build support and get money from the sort of money Chinese interests in this part of the world. It was already deeply relevant then. And that's really sort of 50 years or so before the era we're talking about in the aftermath of World War II. And I think that speaks to the sort of delicate relationship between power and business and national identity that for me makes this all such an interesting subject. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I was struck by what he was saying about the real period of clout for the sort of dynastic Asian tycoons being perhaps in the 1990s for Southeast Asia in the big economic aristocracies. They become very entrenched. They maybe sort of lose capital in times of crisis, but he sort of painted them as this aristocracy class. And that really does concentrate the mind on the problem that you're talking about, which is sort of handing off to the younger generation. Because if they're already past their prime in that sense, that does seem like a particularly pertinent question to be thinking about. But it also made me wonder, surely this tech boom in Asia is minting a whole handful of new billionaires and sort of wealthy people who are just at the beginning of their dynasty as well. So I wonder where we are in the cycle of massive Asian tycoons. Yeah, I was really struck by this idea that all the disruption of the post-war era and the end of European colonialism around the time really created this incredible opportunity for a very entrepreneurial generation to build these sprawling business empires and then ride out the subsequent wave of growth in Asia. And as you were talking about before, you know, really managing to stay at the apex of the economy for quite a long time. And I suppose at least part of that is the fact that many of these families have accrued huge amounts of political capital that helps them to grease the wheels of business 
On the topic of this business-politics nexus, actually, one piece in this week's paper that I'm very much looking forward to reading is a big take on how the massive industrial subsidies that the US is deploying at the moment to help with decarbonisation are driving a huge boom in the lobbying industry, which is the kind of seedy underbelly of American capitalism. Alice, what are you looking forward to reading this week? I'm uh, really looking forward to reading a piece by my colleague Henry Kerr on whether or not it's sort of inevitable that the state will have to take a bigger role in banking going forwards. After the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, with all of these calls for things like unlimited deposit insurance and people parking their money in funds that just put it straight in the central bank, it seems inevitable that the role of central banks is just going to have to grow in the aftermath of this. And so I'm really looking forward to reading what he has to say about what that world might look like. Listeners can read those pieces for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That's if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll hear why it's so hard for first-generation plutocrats to hand over the keys to their vast empires. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the break, we heard about the decisions over succession facing some of Asia's wealthiest people. To dig into what underpins those decisions, I spoke to Kevin Au, Associate Professor and Director of the Center for Family Business at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Kevin, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So, We've got this generation of wealth in Asia, which was really the first in the modern era. And some of the people who founded the businesses that generated that wealth, they're getting to be very elderly. Some of them have died already, but some of them are in their 80s, 90s, pushing sort of 100 years old. And the attention is turning not just to their children, where it's been for many decades, some of their children have worked in these family businesses already, but to their grandchildren. So we wanted to ask, how is the next generation different from their predecessors? I suppose the easiest place to start is with their education and their upbringing. How was their sort of childhood different from their grandparents' childhood? How was their education different to their grandparents and their parents? Right. Their grandparents are usually more grown up in the local situation in China or Asia, whereas uh, the third generation, usually they're being sent overseas to study and they study the modern technology, modern governance system, democracy, and they are usually being opened up to a lot of different perspectives compared to their grandparents, even parents. So in a way, we can say that they're usually more liberal because they are being usually sent to you know, Western countries where they could receive the best education. And in most of the cases, when they were younger, 
they're also being told that they could do whatever they want to do. So they have this feeling that they could pick their paths and only found out that the freedom that are being given was not that big. Usually, you know, when the grandparents or parents facing some situation, they may change their mind. So that's interesting. In, in terms of the ways in which these heirs, when they do, if they do, come back to the family business, obviously there's a number of different ways of them coming back in. Some of them might go immediately to sort of relatively traditional high-level roles. But some of them, and I think this is something you've looked into, that they're, they're using family resources to build new business lines with the sort of experiences gained from their education, their work experience. Yes, they would take on different career paths. I mean, traditionally, the ideal career path for a family business kid would be they finish education, they work outside for some internship, then they go back and they pick up on some high-speed career path to pick up the management role as quickly as possible. Then later on, maybe able to take over the family business after some nurturing of the family. But as you said, I mean, now we actually discover a number of different possible career paths. Some of the kids never actually go back to the family firm. You know, they study in a very interesting educational environment. They may pick up a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. And then it's likely that they may form a team with their classmates or friends and then set up a startup outside and then try on this possibility of uh, entrepreneurship themselves and become independent. We also observe that even that happened, it doesn't mean that they will never go back to the family business. So is there ever a challenge in that attitudes have changed in some of the places that we're talking about? A lot of the grandparents' generation in these setups are sort of public heroes, really. They're sort of these titan figures of industry in the same way that you would have had Rockefeller or Ford or Carnegie for a different generation. Whereas now you have attitudes towards younger business leaders and perhaps especially the children of older business leaders that's much more similar to the normal attitudes that you have in other parts of the world. Is that a sort of challenge for the succession taking over from these huge heroic figures? Oh, yeah. We always said that for the particular first generation, letting go is the major issue they have to deal with. These people are very successful. They're in the public limelight. They have accustomed to be successful and being respected. But of course, we know that, you know, time flies and people age and they lost energy. So one day they understand that they have to step down. Second is how they could find the kind of leader or to nurture the kind of future leaders that they feel comfortable. Because they build an empire, they have a legacy. They don't want the legacy to be ruined. But the tricky part about this is like how they could train the leader when they are always powerful, right? So if you have a very powerful father, you know, as a son, um, it's fairly difficult for you to grow up. So somehow there's a dance between this powerful father and the competent son, between the first and the second. The second and third will face a different kind of challenge. The second generation leader, even though they're separate, they're not like the first generation leader. They are usually brothers and sisters, but they still grow up under the same roof. So they have a lot of understanding among each other. Whereas for the third generation, as we said before, they are growing different branches. So the distance is bigger. So when the second generation try to pass to the third generation, something they have to do is attract the third generation to come back and then find a way to let them understand enough about family business. So in a way, the third challenge is to a lot of these family families to whether they could find some trust outside the family to help them. Because many of the issues among families are, even though they know, I mean, there could be grudges or there could be like future visions among them, 
And you mentioned there sort of the idea of successful handovers. And I'd like to ask a little bit about the unsuccessful ones. Obviously, they're not the business dynasties because these are the ones that sometimes don't survive in the same form. Sometimes the children really don't want to. But what are the sort of common modes of failure when this doesn't work out? For cases where they don't have success, some of the reasons could be family conflict, like different cross-border generation, even around siblings, they may end up in lawsuits. In Hong Kong, we have about 15 years ago, we have barbecue goose restaurant. They enter into this huge fight across generations and the siblings could not figure out what to do. And then in some cases, recently we have this great eagle properties company. Their mother have sided with some of their children and then suing the other side of the children. So conflict would be something that would usually is a indisputable kind of example of a failure. There could be also cases where the incoming generation try to take over and then try to continue the family business, but due to different kind of issues, environment or their own ability, they are not able to continue business and continue family legacy. So these are usually situations of failures. Kevin, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. So, Tom, Alice, are you relieved that you were not born into plutocratic business empires and you now aren't forced into a high-profile succession battle? Well, my father does have a small GP practice, so I suppose I could have gone into the family business, but alas, medicine wasn't for me. But what's interesting about this topic is that leadership succession is always difficult at companies. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the situation at Disney where Bob Iger has returned for a second stint atop the company after his anointed successor, Bob Chapek, flopped in the role. And Howard Schultz has just finished his third go as boss of Starbucks. So it's really hard to find a good successor. And when you limit your choice of candidates to one of your offspring, you can see why these things often don't work out. You need someone who is both capable and willing to take on the role. And then if you have multiple children who are up for it, the result is what I can only imagine are some incredibly awkward family dinners. Yes, I suppose this is the time that I have to admit that I did in theory go into the family business because both of my parents are economists. My dad runs an energy economics business and my mom was an economist for the government. But that didn't necessarily include them handing me the keys to a giant empire, more just them giving me the economist to read when I was very wee. I agree with Tom that the question of succession is always extremely difficult, doubly so if you're only going to give it to your kids. And while I recognise that this is sort of very pertinent and important for the people who sort of run these businesses and for probably the fate of those firms, I can't help but think that I probably won't shed too many tears if they mess it up. I prefer to put all my faith in this new up and coming businessmen and women in Asia rather than fretting too much that the kids who've inherited the sort of world might mess it up. But it's still a very interesting question to ponder. Uh, My parents also not handing down a business empire. They're both civil servants. So unless they start doing heritable government jobs, (laughs) I've got nothing coming to me. I was really interested to hear from Kevin about family businesses in general and getting the impression that essentially these problems happening to often companies worth tens of billions of dollars 
are essentially exactly the same as the ones for the sort of millions of SMEs in Asia that also operate as family businesses. And I think the whole thing made me think actually about Joe Studwell's other book, which is How Asia Works, which is his sort of thesis on economic development in Asia, why certain countries have done really well and why certain countries have not grown nearly as quickly. What does it say about an economy when these dynasties crop up and become incredibly important this way? Is it sort of a sign of top brass of the private sector managing to work hand in hand with the government and is an example of certain Asian values coming to the fore? Is it just a sort of cultural thing that you can't get past? Or is it more than that? Does it say something about the sort of economic model? Japan, as Joe mentioned, really just doesn't have this phenomenon in the same way. I'm not quite sure what that says about the development of the countries, but I do find it very, very interesting. I think I also find myself thinking about the sort of third generation a lot and what happens when the people in these senior positions are much more international and liberal and cosmopolitan than they have been in the past. And I think in a lot of cases are a lot more international than most of the people in the countries they're coming from. Does the model still really work if that's the case? And I'm also thinking about what Joe said about Robert Kwok switching between Malay and Indonesian and multiple Chinese dialects and wondering whether speaking the political language at home and the language of San Francisco and Silicon Valley and the sort of young US business elite, is that the modern equivalent? Alice, what you mentioned about the sort of new tech wealth coming through adds a completely new dimension to this. And you can actually see to some extent some of the sort of old ways of working coming to the fore again. You have tech companies in Southeast Asia and parts of East Asia as well now that are increasingly looking a little bit like sort of national champions. You know, they might be getting a little bit more assistance from the government than they would usually give to a sort of piddling startup. And I wonder whether you see this sort of model replicated again in the future with these new companies coming through. So leaving on a sort of cliffhanger, because I don't have an answer to those questions, shall we pivot to our stats of the week? Let's do it. I'm happy to kick us off. So my stat of the week is 1,500, which is the number of people who are left working at Twitter, according to comments from Elon Musk earlier this week. So before Musk took over, there were more than 7,000 people working there. So these are really massive cuts. And the big question that's still hanging over Twitter now is whether the service will remain intact. Apparently, quite a lot of the engineers involved in keeping all the systems afloat have been shown the door now. So it will be interesting to see whether Musk's big gamble here pays off or whether the whole thing just comes crashing down. Yeah, I don't think any of his kids are quite old enough to take the reins yet. So (laughs) (laughs) he's on his own for now, I guess. My stat of the week this week is 0.83%, which is the share of deposit accounts in America that have more than $250,000 in them. So more than the federally protected deposit insurance cap. And there are about 60 million deposit accounts in America. So only that tiny fraction of them actually have uninsured money in them. This stat comes from a a report by the Cato Institute, help frame some of the discussion about unlimited deposit insurance. It really is only the super wealthy and the really big businesses that actually have uninsured money in America. 
it's those hard-hearted guys at the Cato Institute want the the sort of average Joe in the street with merely a few million <laughs> in a checking account to, to suffer when a bank goes under. It's a terrible state of affairs, isn't it? So uh, my statistic of the week, and I was trying to think back to whether this happened before, but my number is zero, which appears to be the number of times that shares in a new Japanese equity listing called iSpace were traded in their market debut in <laughs> Tokyo on uh, April the 12th. And they seem not to have traded. There seemed to be a, a huge number of bidders that wanted to purchase the stock at a much higher price than its offering price, and yet no exchanges happened. I'm not totally sure what that means for the company or for the markets in Tokyo. Maybe something terrible is going on that I'm not understanding iSpace actually very interesting. They're trying to put the world's first commercial lander on the moon, which they're hoping to do later this month. Let's hope they're better at that than they are apparently at organising an IPO. <laughs> Initially, my heart sort of bled for this poor share that uh, had been completely unloved by investors, but apparently they were all clamouring for it, which makes me think that, uh, yeah, either some sort of horrible technical glitch or maybe something uh, different is going on. Yeah, no idea. I guess we may come back to you and update you about iSpace. Uh, uh, we may never mention it again, in which case this is the last you'll hear of it. With that, I wanted to thank Joe Studwell and Kevin Ow. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. <laughs>